just mark your Bibles there, and we'll just be uh, reading from the text and making some brief points through it. Um, I was wanting to teach on 1 Timothy 4, uh, because uh, at one point a long time ago, I was teaching through 1 Timothy on Sunday afternoons, and then I started teaching on Luke on Sunday afternoons, and so it's been over a year. So in my mind, I was thinking, well, probably be good to do some kind of review of some sort to get back up to speed to chapter 4. So I texted uh, Mike earlier in the week uh, what he thought would be a good way to get back into it, and he recommended doing uh, a three-point lesson with one point dedicated to each chapter. So if this is overwhelming, blame Mike and uh, talk to him afterwards. Uh, But you may actually find that this is much more digestible, odd as it is, um, than it is when, if you remember when I went through these before. So uh, 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 3, the top part of this is going to be just the general title of any time I go into First and Second Timothy or Titus. Uh, that comes from First Timothy 3. The idea is Paul will later see, tells Timothy to understand that we're, we're in God's household as a church. Not just, that's not just when we're assembled, but generally the church is God's household. And then uh, the idea of this lesson on the bottom is fully forming our faith, fully forming our faith. And just by introduction, our faith is fully formed when we follow God's direction. And something that I think is easy to overlook is that in First and Second Timothy and Titus, God gives us very clear direction about where our teaching is supposed to be going and, and what, kind of, what kind of purpose should be in our teaching. So these are four verses just from First Timothy. And you'll notice a consistency. Paul keeps repeating to Timothy, teach these things, prescribe these things. So there, there's a focus. And, and this isn't even counting in 2 Timothy and Titus. Paul continues to press and reaffirm this, teach these things, teach these things. And so one, one point I want to make is with that, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus are not just letters for evangelists. Uh, these letters exist, I think, in, in major part whether or not a church has somebody who's able to work in the capacity of being an evangelist, they're written so that churches in general are able to understand and connect and anchor their purpose and focus and direction in every way with God's. You don't need somebody to be working as an evangelist here or anywhere to understand these things because they're right here, right? So it's important that we understand generally where are we supposed to be going with our teaching? Where, where does God want us to focus? Obviously, everything in God's word is important, right? God's whole counsel includes every book of the Bible. That includes Song of Solomon, by the way. Uh, so you've got God's whole word in total, but what First and Second Timothy and Titus really do is I think the urge is directed of, well, what are you supposed to be getting out of everything in the Bible? Like what, what points, what principles, what applications, what is all of that for? And I think it's meant to keep us from spinning our wheels and just giving lessons that are nice. It's, it's nice to hear God's word. It's nice to have done a lesson. But what we'll see is if it doesn't accomplish God's purpose, something was, something was needed that was missing, right? So the next thing is, whether or not I'm held accountable by anyone else, an evangelist is always expected to not just teach these things in a public format. First and Second Timothy are meant to be the basis for how an evangelist forms his relationships with brethren. And the, the most dire charges in all scripture are given to Timothy and Titus to fulfill and follow through with keeping these things and, and teaching these things, interacting with brethren in a way consistent with these things. And so 
there, there, there needs to be some sense of purpose and direction relationally and in general among God's people with those things, and that's very important. So chapter 1. Chapter 1, I think, gets into what is the cornerstone of our faith. Like, what are we, what are we building off of? And I think 1 Timothy chapter 1 gives us some very essential principles to follow to understand really what, what's the general anchor for the cornerstone we're setting ourselves on in Christ and the gospel. So starting in verses 1 through 7, the goal of our instruction. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of our God or of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to futile discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which uh, they make confident assertions. So verse 5, if there's like a verse in the Bible to memorize, to like imprint into your mind, that's the one. What is the goal of our instruction? The goal of our instruction is God's love, right? Have you ever been talking to somebody and like you kept, you know, you kept up the conversation, they kept saying, you're missing the point, you're missing the point, right? It's easy to miss the point with God's word. We're not just trying to have intellectual study. We're not trying when we're studying God's word to exalt knowledge to some place where we're just trying to memorize Bible facts. We're not just trying to understand how to do correct things and keep away from incorrect things. We've got to understand the point. And I'm telling you, it is so easy to miss the point. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying there's all sorts of people who have totally missed the point. They're paying attention to the things that they shouldn't even be bothering to pay attention to. They're getting into fruitless discussions. They're, they're giving rise to speculation rather than furthering God's administration. So our responsibility, first and foremost, is to get the point. The goal of our instruction is love. We need to learn to focus on what furthers the administration of God, which is by faith. Understanding how to see the righteousness of God at work and exercised, but also how to begin to apply that righteousness through faith in God's promises, not of ourselves, but through humbling ourselves to trust in the Lord, right? First thing with verse 3. What's the implication of instructing men not to teach strange doctrine? What's the implication? There is good doctrine. There's sound doctrine. You will see the, the, the emphasis of sound doctrine flowing constantly through First and Second Timothy and Titus. Generally, people will kick hard against sound doctrine. And the idea that there is a standard we are expected to be following. We need to be focused on truth. We need to be teaching the truth, but we need to see the glory of the truth. So it's not just that truth and sound doctrine is understanding correct mechanical obedience, right? Again, verse 5, there is a character to truth. There's a form and a heart condition of truth. Truth equips us to live soberly. Truth equips us to have 
the correct view of God through our faith. Truth motivates us to action. Truth encourages us and strengthens us. Truth purifies our hearts. Truth gives us clean consciences and encourages us to listen to the conscience built and founded on God's word. And truth keeps our faith sincere and keeps us motivated to trust in the Lord by faith, right? And so sound doctrine has a purpose and a form that we need to be constantly working to better understand and follow. And we need to be very, very careful that we're not falling into this idea of fruitless discussion. And again, it's easy for Bible studies, Bible classes, to just become fruitless discussions. Where we're reading the Bible, we're talking about the Bible, but are we actually furthering the administration of God, which is by faith, as we're studying God's word together? Is that what we're doing? It also gives purpose, I think, to personal Bible study. Why do we read our Bibles? Why do we invest time and sacrifice time to read the Bible? Is it just because it's a good thing to do and a correct thing to do? I mean, that is a part of it. But we want to learn more about the God who's redeemed us. We want to maintain and purify our hearts. We want to see God more clearly. We want to know more about his love. And those things give purpose to things like like Bible study. The end of verse 7 leads into the rest of the chapter. So he mentions that these people who are making these assertions, wanting to be teachers, they don't understand what they're actually teaching. They have no idea what they're doing in handling God's word because they have no perception of themselves as God has intended for them to have by his word. They're unable to perceive themselves and reflect on their own condition in the light of what's written. So that leads into verses 8 through 17, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Verse 8, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, from those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This section kind of brings some hymns we sing to mind. And there's way more hymns that come to mind, obviously, than the ones I'll I'll mention. But there's a song we sing, Tell me the story of Jesus, write on my heart every word. That's the idea. There's another song we sing where we sing, Oh, I want to see him look upon his face, there to sing forever of his saving grace we should just be so infatuated with the Lord that it's as if it's, it's totally overwhelming. And notice the balance of the way that Paul writes about these things. Verse 8 through 11, does some of that language make you uncomfortable? You know, the lawless, the rebellious, the profane, those who are killing their fathers, their mothers, murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, 
kidnappers, perjurers, everything else contrary to sound teaching. Paul has no problem just listing off those sinful conditions one after another. But think about this. To Paul, was that those nasty people out there? Like all those disgusting kidnappers and homosexuals and, you know, those people who kill their fathers and mothers. Look at verse 13 and see how Paul saw himself. And then you look at verse 15 and the way he saw himself in verse 15. To Paul it was not this law was made for those nasty, filthy people. What he's saying is, when I'm confronted with the glory of the gospel of our blessed God, I realize I'm worse than all of them. That those people who kill their fathers and mothers, that those people who are kidnappers and perjurers and liars, here I am beneath them all, face to face with the fact that God's glory and his righteousness is so vast, there's no ability I any longer have to measure up at all. And I fall into the hands of his overwhelming grace. So the first sub-point on here, this is so important. The gospel's glory gives light to the depth of my sin. When we see Jesus, when we see how he exercised himself, when we grow more and more familiar with his thoughts, his attitude, his way of seeing people and treating people, it gives light to just how deep the problem of my sin has really gone, especially when we're faced with the cross. But at the same time, as I see the depth of my sin, it actually gives light to the greatness of the gospel's glory. Because so far from me exists the heights of God's righteousness. So a part of this administration of God which is by faith is constantly being, being open to this reflection of seeing God's glory, but then at the same time having that reflect just how distant I am from that, that glory. But then as I see how distant I am, I see how high his righteousness goes, and it just continues just back and forth and back and forth. And with that balance, you notice all these adjectives, and I think that's the right, I'm not like an English person. Uh, I, don't, I don't speak English well or understand the language well, but adjective, it's like, I think that's like words you use to describe nouns, right? Right? Okay, good, good. So you notice all the adjectives he uses to describe the grace of God, to describe God, to describe Jesus, even though he talked about sin and his own sin, that equips him to be overwhelmed by these very specific qualities of the gospel. It makes him, in verse 12, thankful to Jesus as Lord. It helps him see the strength of Jesus working outside of his own, the hopefulness of being considered faithful simply out of confidence that if Paul were to be convicted, he would be faithful on the basis of faith. This isn't saying that Paul, as a Pharisee and Jew, was just, oh, he was so dedicated. You know, if, if Paul became a Christian, man, oh man, if he would just transfer this zeal to the truth, we would really have ourselves a strong Christian. The idea is God was reserving his grace for a time when Paul would best understand just how lost he really was. And then when you get down to verse 15, the idea is at that point... Paul could realize how strong the faith and love of Christ Jesus are, which strengthens him. Not of himself, lest any man boast, but of Christ, right? So when we realize the depth of God's grace, it will overwhelm our language. Paul, you could just get the sense that he loved talking about the grace of the Lord. He loved talking about it. He loved talking about the faithfulness of God. He loved talking about the strength that God affords his people 
to Paul, this is all about the glory of the good news of Jesus Christ. We cannot forget that. If we are studying the Bible and we're gathering together and we are enthralled more and more with the good news of the gospel, and if we're not motivated to tell people about the good news, that there's liberty and freedom from sin, something is wrong. The administration of God, which is by faith, is not really being followed. Foremost of everything, we should be so infatuated with the gospel. And Paul, in verse 15, how he saw himself in relation to Jesus, in his mind, if Jesus came into the world to save sinners, sign me up. Help me understand just how much of a sinner I am. Because if that's who he came to save, then I want to be as much that as I possibly can be. So Paul did not resist that he was a sinner. He embraced it as wholeheartedly as possible, knowing if that's who he saw himself to be, then the grace of God is made perfect in him. So we can't withdraw ourselves from seeing our weakness because then we're withdrawn also from the grace of God. Uh, and Paul serves as a pattern, you see, in verse 16. Uh, verse 17, we need to see Jesus as a king, but not just in some empty way of, well, he's a king, so I guess i got to obey him. No, he's the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to whom belong all the glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Conclusive. Seal it. If we aren't, again, just being so overwhelmed in gratitude to know God from every possible angle, something's wrong. We've got to see the importance of how focusing on the internals helps us to see the glory of the God who has redeemed us. Verse 18 to 20. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them, you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered, suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Really simple point, we're going to go into chapter 2. thing that shows that we need strong encouragement. We need to be encouraged greatly that we can, we can be faithful by the strength and the power of God. And it's so important that we be faithful. So we need strong encouragement. We need strong urging. We need, we need strength behind the urging to be taken into a place of action. We're on a mission. And so Paul is telling Timothy, fight the good fight. Imagine he's inferring there's a great conflict that's going to involve suffering. But you engage in that battle. You do it. We need strong urging, but we also need strong warning. So Paul told Timothy, the reality is you need to keep your conscience and your faith sound and sober because there's some people who have shipwrecked their faith, turning away from these things. And he has no fear to name them, Hymenaeus and Alexander. We need to deal with sin strongly. If somebody's in sin, if somebody's going to turn away from the glory of the good news we've received, that's got to be revealed strongly. And that's not, or it's got to be dealt with strongly. It's not that we're not being patient, compassionate, understanding, but we must treat sin strongly. If somebody needs to be handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme the glory of the king who's redeemed us, so be it. We have got to protect not only our own purity, but we need to protect the purity of God's holy name. And we do that when we treat sin strongly. Chapter 2, directing our faith. Uh, verses 1 through 7. First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and, who are, who are, and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. 
This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at a proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You know what's interesting about this in chapter 2? Notice that everything just seems, seems to keep coming back to giving new angles to the person of Christ. So in chapter 1, you, you've got a few angles of who Jesus was, but then when you look at verse 5 and 6, he's a mediator between God and men, and he's given as a ransom and testimony at the proper time. Everything just comes back to having a better and more clear and anchored understanding of Christ. Everything we do in our obedience simply just keeps reflecting back on the God and the Christ who is sent to be our Father, to be our Redeemer, to be our King. So we, want, we should want to know and see Jesus as clearly as we possibly can. God's call, living in all godliness and dignity. First things first. If you were going to write a letter to somebody who is going to be an evangelist, what would you say is highest priority? Mike and I have been to some uh, preacher studies where like a bunch of preachers get together. Sometimes the question will be asked to older preachers, what should we focus on? What, what should we be teaching? And I don't mean this to demean anyone um, who has answered that question, but oftentimes you don't hear answers that are a reflection of what Paul told Timothy. First things first. Teach on prayer. First of all, Prayer is the highest priority. Talked about this a couple weeks ago a little bit, and so I'm not going to really step on the same kinds of things, but just the idea, prayer is the greatest discipline of our faith. We need to understand prayer, to be devoted to prayer. Paul would say to the Ephesians, pray at all times in the Spirit. Paul to the Thessalonians would say, pray without ceasing, right? We need to be in love with talking to God, but in chapter 2, there's some things that we didn't talk about a couple weeks ago, specifically disciplining ourselves to pray for all men, praying with all prayer for all men. Uh, I think a, a way to apply this practically is you think about just for like a day of the week, not overwhelming yourself, because when I hear for all men, basically like when I think about praying for all men, I pray for no man, because I think like, well, that's overwhelming. How could I possibly pray for everybody that's too much maybe just for a day focus on one person doesn't have to be a christian this isn't saying pray for christians he's saying pray for everybody so you could think like somebody you're working with pray for them find ways to be thankful for them find ways to pray in an intercessory way intercessory way for their salvation pray for people dedicate yourself in a disciplined way to doing this don't overwhelm yourself keep it simple and just do it. We need to learn to love people as God does because praying, the second subpoint, praying in the Spirit yokes us with the Lord. And by yoke, I mean that image that Jesus uses, uh, take my yoke upon you. It's like when an animal is going through and treading something out or, or working with a person behind them. A yoke is something that attaches two animals together and puts them in same movement, Right? So it's the idea of prayer puts us into God's perspective. It gives us the same sense of purpose. And you see in verse 4, what is the purpose of all of this? 
God desires fundamentally for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We've got to put that as our perspective. God wishes for everyone to be saved. I don't know if you've thought much about the fact that God wishes, but we need to learn to wish for the same things that God wishes for, to long for the things that God longs for. Fundamentally, he is longing for the salvation of everybody around us in the community. We should be craving, like Glenn was saying in the announcements, if we can just say something, to get something in someone's heart to seek the truth, if we can sit down and read the Bible with somebody, that should just be an exhilarating thing for us to pursue those things, right? To not have that sense of mission and purpose shows a lack of proper discipline in prayer. Prayer is not just meant to ask God for things for ourselves. I think like what we see in the Psalms, prayer is meant to change our perspective, to align the way that we see reality with God. And in verse 6, Jesus gave himself completely to this purpose and perspective. It's an evidence of Jesus' deep and consistent prayer life. The more we pray in the Spirit, the more we will look like this. First things first, we need to be mission-minded. We need to understand that there's a purpose behind us praying. We're not just Praying because, again, like reading the Bible, just a good thing that we know we should do. No, there needs to be purpose behind our prayer, and we need to be working to grow in the discipline of our prayer. Now, obviously, all godly disindignity, the goal is when we put our trust in the Lord, when we're aware of his working and his purpose, it calms and settles our soul to focus on first things, kingdom things. When Jesus was crucified, when the disciples in the book of Acts were being pursued from town to town, they didn't become boisterous, they didn't become loud, even in persecution and the threat of death, they still lived quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and dignity. We live in all godliness and dignity when we understand how to, in an unyielding way, keep our focus fixed on the kingdom. Even in the midst of turbulence and persecution, whatever the culture and circumstances, if I'm praying like this, I will be dedicated to godliness, quietness, and holiness. Transitioning into chapter or verse nine, verse eight through the end of the end of the chapter, God calls us to be holy men and women, and this is going to get into roles. Notice back again in verse six and seven. Jesus, what did he do with the role God had called him into? What did he do with it? He fulfilled it. God sent Jesus to take on the role of mediator and ransom. Jesus said, "Sign me up. Take it all the way." Is that a desirable work to do? Was that like a glorious, uh, by, by appearance I mean, a glorious role to submit to? It's just about the most degrading and humiliating thing Jesus could have possibly pursued. But, hey, if that's God's role, sign me up. Verse 7, Paul says, you know what? I've got a role too. I'm an apostle and I'm appointed a teacher. Well, that means, Paul, you're going to suffer. And it's never going to stop. And you're going to suffer so much, it's going to be an example for people afterwards. Well, if that's God's role, sign me up. We've got to get into the attitude when God says something about our role that is not what we would deem to be glorious, we've got to have the faith to still submit, right? So, verses 8 through 15. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. 
that I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So I'm just going to give some bullet points on these things. These, these roles are not based on time or culture. Our culture or any culture, even at its best, will not properly exemplify these things. We're not trying to go back to the 60s and 50s. We're not trying to go back to some bygone era where it seems like women and men acted more like the Bible. Culture will always get it wrong. And we're deceived if we think that culture, without a zeal for the Lord and submission to his truth, can attain to these things. Our model is Christ and his instruction. And our goal is to just blind ourselves to any thinking that there's some kind of model out there that's sufficient and to just direct ourselves, here it is right here. Let's be this. Let's be this and let's not think that we can find these things as models in the world around us. So men are called to be spiritual leaders. In verse 8, this is one of the reasons why you'll see men leading prayer at this local congregation. Men are called to be the spiritual leaders. Men need to be spiritual leaders in a way that's humble and gentle and peaceable. Holy hands. Men who are dedicated to holiness. Men who hold themselves accountable to God's righteousness. Men who are uh, not competitive with others. People who aren't trying to exalt themselves into some kind of uh, high view of others. The idea of without wrath and dissension is a man who's peaceable and himself submissive and quiet as a leader, right? Focused on the Lord and focused on, again, yoking himself to God's perspective through prayer. Women are called to be modest and submissive and dedicated to good works through faith. Modesty in scripture, this Greek word, it really refers to having some sense of shame and honor and respect. A woman's appearance should exemplify the reality of shame and honor. It is shameful to call too much attention to self in an undue way, right? Here the model is not trying to show off like costly garments and expensive things, but I think it works on the opposite as well. It's obviously not trying to, the idea is not trying to show off my body and appearance. I'm not trying to bring attention to myself through appearance. I don't want people to be impressed by how attractive I am. I'm not trying to doll myself up to make sure that people know that I'm really somebody great. But instead, I'm drawing attention to good works instead. It's not that idea that I can't wear like nice clothes and wear makeup. I don't think that's the idea. But it's the idea of what are we striving to draw attention to. And the call of God is bring attention to good works, as is fitting for a woman who is making a claim to godliness. To be discreet is the idea of being purposely restrained. All things governed, restricted, and controlled. The idea is something that could go farther is held back. So discreetly would be that a woman's call is to work to hold yourself back. Which I think gets into the idea of submission and quickly yielding to instruction And it's so important to see these things as being just a glorious model of a role that has such an incredible impact on the world in godliness and especially to those who are close to those who model these things. Um, I think it's really concerning, uh, and it should be very concerning if not grievous and frustrating, when these definitions of roles are rejected or looked down upon. My mom, 
has done more to anchor my faith in the Lord than maybe anyone else in existence. Without ever teaching a public sermon, without trying to overwhelm my dad's authority in the household, in quietness and according to these instructions, my mom anchored my faith. Uh, There's a woman named uh, Cindy who's related to Glenn, ironically, and she's one of the quietest people you'd ever meet. And she's so dedicated to good works, you never know it. She quietly suffers and she does so many things way in the background. Never hear her thinking that she needs to have a more frontal role in the assemblies, nothing like that. And I'm telling you, this woman, like my mother, has impacted my faith maybe more than anyone else besides my mom. When I visited Atlanta a couple years ago, there was a study at a widow's house. I think it was like a friend of hers. It was a study at her apartment. A lot of these ladies weren't Christians, but there was maybe one or two that were Christians. And the brother taking me to this study was really talking about how encouraging this person is, how encouraging the study is. And when we got there, I had no idea who was who. I had no idea who was a Christian, who was just learning the Bible and trying to figure things out. But the comments that this one particular lady was making, in my mind, I was like, this lady loves the Lord. She, is, she has got to be a, a true Christian. And after the study, I was continuing to talk, talk to her, and she said something that I hope I'll always remember. Um, and she, just in the midst of everything, she talked about how much she loves the Lord, and, you know, I was, I was talking to her about how much I appreciated her comments, and she, and she said, oh, yes, we just love the Lord so much, don't we? And then I was like, oh, yeah, wow, that's, that's just so encouraging. Well, one thing she said, she said she has a decoration in her kitchen by the window that makes a rainbow when light passes through it because... It reminds her of God's covenant with Noah, and she just loves that so much. It just floored me. (laughs) Wow. I'll never forget that. When we left, that brother said, she is one of the most important workers at the church where he is, comprised of hundreds of Christians. So listen, don't ever think that having a quiet role is degrading or somehow makes you less important. God hates that way of thinking. God forbid we think that way. That somebody being quiet and falling into the background and restraining themselves somehow means they're less valuable than somebody who's more frontal. God forbid we ever think that way and allow those thoughts to cultivate in us. Chapter 3. Maturing our faith. Verses 1 through 13. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable. Sorry, I'm still emotional from the last last point. Free from the love of money, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his own children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, uh, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation from those who are outside the church that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. 
Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children in their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Again, just some brief bullet points really with these things. The point of this is not to define these things, to get really into details of it all. But here's the gist. And, and I guess before that, I want to make sure I say, for anyone who doesn't, doesn't know, I am not a pastor. I am not a pastor of this church, right? That is a common error in the world, is thinking that somebody, being a preacher, that's a pastor. That's wrong. An overseer is a pastor. He's a bishop. He's an overseer. He's a shepherd. They're all the same thing. And unless somebody meets these qualifications, that's not who they are, and they must be appointed into that work by the congregation. Another thing about that is there's always a plurality. There is no one pastor. Again, common error, which shows how far the world is from caring about the details of sound doctrine in the word. I'm not a pastor. A preacher is not the same thing as a pastor. These are men appointed to a work as recognized by the church where they are working. Bullet points. These are men whose hearts and character have matured and have been refined by the love of God and in loving brethren purposely. This doesn't just happen on accident. These aren't just men who, like their children, grow up and it just so happens they're Christians and then, well, he doesn't seem to lose his temper a lot, so why don't we have him as our elder? It's not the idea. These are qualities that come from exercising God's love and taking initiative in that. Verse 1, this is something that should be desired. When it's put forward, this will mean you're going to have no time for yourself. All that leisure time, forget it. You're going to bear people's burdens that are going to be really heavy and uncomfortable, and you're going to suffer a lot more. Also, you're going to give an account to God on his throne on the final day for every soul under your charge. How does that sound? And somebody who's exercised their faith in this way says, I can't help but do it. Because I love God's people so deeply. That's what we're working towards. And if that's not what we're becoming, we're spinning our wheels. We need to be learning the importance of loving our brethren and having temperance control purposely because without self-control, it is impossible to appropriately bear anyone's burdens in faith. People have such heavy burdens, and God be praised for it because it trains us to know the God who has redeemed us and gladly bears our own burdens. God be praised for the burdens that we have in our midst. But we've got to learn how to find peace and joy in bearing those things Men who have dedicated themselves to their family. So as men who have their children under control with all dignity, children seeing their fathers as honorable and respectable to the point where they will gladly yield to them. Doesn't mean kids won't throw their fits. Doesn't mean it's going to be difficult. Or it's not going to be difficult. But it does mean that these are men who have exemplified that as they raise their children, their children understand his authority. And they don't just see that as something that comes out of just base control but because they're willingly loyal to him. That is fundamentally important for an elder or a deacon. And wives equally who are zealous and dedicated to serving and stirring at faith. There's a partnership. So men who get into these offices of serving also have wives who are zealous for serving in the same way. It's a partnership. 
Finally, uh, 14 through 16, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who is revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We are stewards of God's mystery. Yes, people can read in the Bible on their own and, and learn about Jesus and understand him, but God has purposely reserved the greatest depth and height of the knowledge of his son to be discovered through mutual, humble serving that only exists among the saints. If you want to know Jesus, serve your brethren. We can know Jesus factually, but until that makes us begin revealing the mystery of the living God, we don't truly know him. God is known when his impact leads his people to live out his glory. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. This is about exemplifying and revealing the hidden God, the invisible God, but that God has reserved it to exist and unfold among his people, serving simply, loving quietly, but there is the Lord. That's who we need to be striving to be. By invitation, God's zeal is unleashed on these things. Josiah, I was just personal reading, just Josiah was a king who God predestined to do certain things. Not against his will, but you can see when you read about Josiah's kingship, how far he went to remove the idols of his land and restore things to God. God had fully exerting himself to supporting Josiah, even when Josiah was living in a hopeless culture. We have to understand, we're not just doing these things on our own. God has unleashed himself on those who trust in him to do these things. If we'll do these things, if we'll humble ourselves, God's glory is there. And if you're not a part of God's kingdom, if you're not a part of his church, if you have not been baptized for the remission of your sins or repented of your sins, today is the day to respond to the call. If there's anything else we can do for you this morning, please come while we stand and sing our invitation song.